Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Bob Richards about his great new book, and this is a book that I'm quite excited about, and I hope you'll gather that from the ensuing conversation. Was Hitler a Darwinian? Disputed Questions in the History of Evolutionary Theory. This came out in 2013, very recently, with the University of Chicago Press. From the title, you might assume that this is a book fundamentally and only about Darwin, about Darwinianism and or its connection to Hitler. And you might therefore look past it if you're just looking at the title and you don't have an inherent background in or any kind of training in understanding the history of Darwin or the history of evolutionary theory. It is That is emphatically not the case. This is a book that is a collection of essays each of which deals in some important, crucial way with either Darwin, Darwinian theories, or people and figures or books that have been identified as Darwinian. So it is definitely an important contribution and and a quite um, thoughtful and really interesting contribution to Darwin studies, to the history of evolutionary biology and its instantiations in various kinds of texts. But at the same time, the book really is a model of and is very um, explicitly and implicitly concerned with various elements of the craft and the concept of what it is to conceptualize, to identify, to define, and to really imagine a historical theory. What is a theory? Where is a theory? In what does it adhere? How do we go about finding it and tracing it over time? In addition to that, you know, what constitutes a kind of argument proving or disproving something about a theory and Darwin's theories in particular? The book is really, um, I mean, really approachably and really clearly um, concerned with writing about this and also extraordinarily stimulating on these issues. And so I learned a ton um, and was really, really fascinated by not just the elements of the book that are, um, and really fascinatingly about Darwin, but also the contributions that the book is making to stimulating a conversation within ourselves and also amongst ourselves, I hope, about what it has looked like, what it can look like and what it might in the future look like to do the history of science. So it's a really, really interesting and I think important book on many different levels. It's also full of um, some really surprisingly tragic and really moving accounts of figures in the history of science, some really interesting new ways to think about Darwin, um, related figures like Heckel that you might not thought of before, and also important interventions into some of the popular or common scholarly or public ways of thinking about the consequences and the nature of Darwin's theories that have real stakes um, and real sort of consequences for not just how we understand scholarship, but also how sometimes that scholarship has been put to use in ways that extend um, very broadly through society and through um, the way we understand and deal with each other. So I hope you enjoy the book. I hope you have a chance to read it. It's a great book. It's really stimulating. And I hope you enjoy the conversation because I certainly did. We're here today with Robert Richards to talk about his awesome new book, Was Hitler a Darwinian? Disputed Questions in the History of Evolutionary Theory. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Bob. And thanks so much for making the time to talk with me about this great book at what I know is a really busy time during the year. So thanks for being here. Well, listen, uh, Carla, if you keep calling it a great book, I'm at your disposal for the rest of the day. (laughs) Okay. Well, good. Um, I might take you up on that. So could you start us off, Bob, um, as is typical or traditional, rather, for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself um, and specifically what brought you to the field of the history of science? This isn't something that many of us get into on purpose. Um, It's not a field that many of us who work in it knew existed at the very beginning stages of our getting interested in scholarship. So how did you come to the history of science? Well, very much uh, as you say, I had only the foggiest notion about the history of science and probably no uh, fixed notions at all. Um, I took a PhD in philosophy of science, uh, became very much interested in philosophy of science, started teaching um, at a university, decided that um, I, as a result of my interest in Darwin, uh, started doing some work in what amounted to the history of Darwinian theory. And then discovered that this is something that I really wanted to uh, develop. But um, I suppose as those who, of us who are 
more academically inclined, thinking that you need professional help, um, I decided to go back to graduate school, which I did at the University of Chicago, and in a program which was devoted to the history of science here at the university. And um, so I became uh, quite enamored of the whole field and um, took a PhD in history of science. And I got lucky. Um, as I was uh, ready to graduate, uh, I, an opening occurred at the university, and um, I was hired. So now that started my career as a historian of science. Great. So the book that we're talking about is one of many books that you've published, and this specifically is a collection of essays, each of which um, undertake, undertakes the questions of import that are thought to have been settled, as you put it early in the book, in the history of biology, but that nonetheless have still generated some sort of significant recent debate. And that um, generation of debate is instantiated in different ways um, in the case of the different um, case studies or cases that the essays individually are responding to. Sometimes it's the publication of a book. Sometimes it's a characterization of the work and uh, reception of a particular historical figure that is spread across many different kinds of sources. So in each case, the essays are engaging some sort of significant question or significant debate. And they're really, really stimulating collectively as well as in individually because of that. So how did you come to um, both the set of topics um, that tie and that link the essays together as a volume and perhaps um, sort of more to the point, how did you decide to create this volume as an object and collect these particular essays as a published standalone book object? Well, I had written several of the essays um, within the last 10 years. And it was, um, I suppose, in pursuit of a what I thought was a rather different view about Darwin and other Darwinians. So, um, for example, in the case of Charles Darwin, I, I've come over many years now uh, to think that there has been a kind of imposition on Darwinian uh, history of a rather contemporary view about evolutionary theory. That is to say that neo-Darwinians uh, look to Darwin as their champion, which I think is perfectly just and right, but that there's a kind of reading back into Darwin's own history about um, certain views that are really rather more contemporary views. And I suppose um, feeling the uh, itch of the historian to try to put um, a literature back into a particular context um, I thought that Darwin had to be cast back into that context. So, for example, the usual view about Darwin is that he introduced a theory of nature that made nature quite mechanistic and that his own um, device of natural selection is often referred to as the mechanism of natural selection. But as I read Charles Darwin and the notebooks and the essays and his letters, uh, one of the terms that rarely occurred in Darwin's own writing is the word mechanism, me uh, mechanical, mechanistic, any of the uh, variations of that term. Mm -hmm. And I think when you put uh, the origin of species in the context of the development of his own ideas through um, the, as I say, the notebooks and other uh, material, it became at least clear to me, I'm not sure that others uh, think it's so clear, that Darwin was not a mechanist. In fact, that's not the, the image or trope that controls the development of his theory and the origin of species. And that aside from uh, devaluing or eliminating values from nature, there are assumptions about um, value in nature that the theory embraces. So uh, one of the leading uh, reasons for investigating both Darwin and other Dar uh, Darwinians like Ernst Haeckel are Darwin's, not his nemesis, but his um, uh, co uh, contemporary, uh, Herbert Spencer, is to try to, at least from my perspective, put them in what is a more reliable historical light. So that's what led me to include the essays. They're all united in one way or another by arguing that our traditional way of viewing these individuals uh, is somewhat defective. Mm -hmm. And then there was the 
added stimulus, the essay that I wrote last, which was not published in any form except in the book, um, was was uh, Hitler a Darwinian. And I wanted to just simply get that off my chest because, um, as you perhaps know, uh, a number of objectors to evolutionary theory and even friends of evolution, uh, evolutionary theory, feel that somehow uh, Darwinian views were instrumental in um, Hitler's biology and with all the consequences of that biology. And so I myself, when I came to it, I, I really didn't have a firm view about that, but uh, I started reading a lot of uh, material from the Nazi period and um, came to the conclusion very rapidly that there is no sense in which Hitler was an evolutionary thinker at all. And therefore, the effort to somehow tie uh, Darwin or others like Ernst Haeckel to um, uh, Hitler's project uh, were just uh, non-starters to begin with. Now, one of the really wonderful things about the volume that um, some of what you just were talking we're talking about um, really leads me to bring up right at the outset is that indeed there are some really common threads that trace through the essays and link them together as a coherent body. And so another major theme running through the essays in the book, and we'll talk about this, I hope, um, by the by the end of our conversation, is a consideration of, as you've alluded to, the moral character of evolutionary theory. But another one of the really fascinating threads running through a lot of the essays, and here's where perhaps I'll, um, what we can start talking about the content of the book, because some of this is laid out in the introduction, is a consideration not just of Darwinian theory as an instantiation of something having to do with Darwin's work, but as an instantiation of theory more generally. So one of the one of the things I really loved um, about the book of essays, and that really excites me, is that this is a book about Darwin and Darwinians, but it's also a book, at least from this perspective of one reader, about what it means, what it looks like, and what it can look like to do the history of science. Um, there are issues of ontology, of what a theory is, of what it means to create an argument, um, both in terms of the fine uh, niceties of craft and also more conceptually what an argument is and how we build one. And this is, these are contributions that I think have wide resonance and ramifications well beyond the field of the history of Darwin and the history of evolutionary theory or the philosophies thereof. So, um, so thank you for that because that was one of the most exciting things um, about this for me. Well, I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> um, I've, I've certainly thought about it a, a fair amount, though I haven't always expressed it explicitly, and the putting together this collection gave me the opportunity to do that. So one of the ways that happens is by instantiation in specific case studies, and we'll talk about some of those. And another way is that after, I think, two, um, two or three of the chapters, you include appendices that look at different elements of um, the arguments that you've given in those chapters, and specifically, in some cases, look at ontological discussions or the issues like the nature of theory. And so um, we'll get to those in a little bit. And um, so that's really, I think, widely assignable, widely readable, and should be widely read, even by scholars who don't consider themselves in the first case inherently interested in Darwin, although I'm sure they will be after they read the book. <laughs> um, so let's start out by getting into a, a few of these issues as they come up in the introduction, and then we'll get into the individual case studies after. Fine. So one of the things that you um, raise early in the introduction is you talk about something that comes up um, later on in one of the, um, I think, essays on Heckel, and that is the issue of using contemporary science to help construe the past. So what is the relationship between uh, contemporary scientific knowledge and our reading of the development of what, what we have constituted as the history of science and the, the knowledge thereof? Um, and you give some, you know, some pretty pointed comments on this in this introduction, and you approach this issue really, really thoughtfully. So if you wouldn't mind, can you speak a little bit to that? What um, elements of thinking about that as a problem do you feel are particularly relevant to the work that you're doing in the book? Well, I think that, first of all, when you, without very much caution, talk about Darwinian theory, uh, it's a little vague about what constitutes Darwinian theory. So I think that um, 
we have contemporary biologists who claim to be Darwinians, and they espouse Darwinian theory. Uh, Charles Darwin undoubtedly espoused a theory, and frankly, one of the most um, frequently used words in Darwin's early notebooks is, according to my theory. Mm-hmm. So exactly um, what kind of thing is a theory, uh, that was of something of concern to me. Now, one can talk about it, um, you know, if you were schooled in logical empiricism, uh, theories were taken to be abstract entities uh, that had relationships to empirical reality through certain what are usually called bridge principles. And it struck me that when we talk about Darwinian theory, um, many people uh, simply assume that there is this abstract structure called Darwinian theory. It has an instantiation in the contemporary period, modern evolutionary biologists appeal to Darwinian theory. It has an instantiation in the 19th century in Darwin's work, um, which if, if you take that view about theories, these are rather abstract entities. This is a view that, for example, Karl Popper made quite uh, popular. It allows you to assume rather more easily than you should that uh, contemporary notions of evolutionary theory are the same ones that Charles Darwin had himself. So there is a kind of caution about using um, sort of contemporary evolutionary theory to, well, let me back up just in talking about theory itself, to worry about where where is a theory? What what kind of... uh, uh, status does it have? What kind of existence does a theory have? Is it that kind of very vague abstract structure that the logical empiricists talked about? Or is it rather more uh, a historical entity, something that might change over time? And in the case of Darwin, since his views are not static, uh, the ones that he adopts very early on uh, change through time, uh, one has to have a more, I think, um, uh, a vivid notion of what a theory, con- what constitutes a theory, to understand it as perhaps not an abstract entity, but a, an historical entity that changes over time. So that's one of the um, uh, considerations that led me to reflect on the nature of theories. Now, you, you asked a rather more specific question, namely uh, the use of contemporary scientific theory to talk about the past. I think that can, that can be done and should be done. One of the advantages an historian has is that he or she, in considering the past, does so from the, the perspective of the present. And it's rather foolish to deny that that is indeed the perspective that you have. You bring a certain amount of knowledge about how the past, um, what occurred in the past, And when you go to reconstruct it in your histories, you're utilizing that knowledge. And there is a knowledge about the past that um, we have and the actors in the past are not privy to. Um, We can see things they couldn't see. We can't always be absolutely crystal clear about their intentions, about what their motivations might be. We try to reconstruct those from the things that they said, their letters, their publications, and so on. But um, we know things that they didn't know. Um, just to give uh, perhaps uh, one kind of example, um, if you look at uh, Hippocratic writings, uh, the Hippocratic writers had a theory of fevers. Um, there were uh, fevers that spiked every other day, every third day, and every fourth day. These were uh, they had a, a sort of a diagnostic um, view about theories. Uh, fevers, excuse me. Now, we could just simply assume that while they were taking up, they were taken on um, by numerology in, a, in various guises, that is, they were interested in these kinds of periodicities, you might think that they had simply imposed this on their observations. But it helps to know that uh, the, the area of Greece was uh, endemic to uh, certain kinds of uh, fevers, 
and that the fevers that uh, malarial fevers, for example, have three different varieties which spike every other cause the fevers to spike every other day, every third day, and every fourth day. So that we know something about the uh, character of the Greek environment, uh, the kinds of diseases endemic to that, um, malarial diseases, for example. And so that gives us a handle on what the uh, Hippocratic writers were actually seeing and what experiencing. Uh, they themselves would not, of course, know anything about uh, malarial uh, uh, entities. So this is just one way in which um, the judicious use of contemporary science can help us articulate the past. You wouldn't want to make past individuals wiser than they were uh, by supposing that they have the kind of knowledge that we have. So you have to, you do have to worry about, as we historians say it, uh, Whig history. But um, I think a judicious use of um, uh, contemporary scientific knowledge and other kinds of knowledge is what the historian relies on. Great. Thank you. Now, you just mentioned um, uh, in uh, not quite in passing, but you mentioned in your discussion the issue of the location of theories. And this actually makes up the focus of one of the really fascinating appendices that I mentioned. This is Appendix 2, the historical ontology and location of scientific theories. Now, this comes um, after the second chapter, which considers the question, if the idea of natural selection was so simple and so fundamental, as you show at the beginning of this chapter, it had been claimed, why did it take so long for the theory to to be published after Darwin supposedly discovered it, and why did it take such a long book to make it clear? Now, there's um, we won't have time to talk about all of the essays, but um, this is, I think, a really great one to start with because it really typifies the uh, kind of methodological approach that you take so beautifully in so many of these essays. And what I mean by that is the argument takes readers through very intricately the nuances and the shape of the development of an idea by a very, very close, very sensitive reading and travel through documents that were produced by Darwin and produced by other Darwinians, including, as you mentioned, letters and, and published works and so on and so on. So it's a really interesting kind of model of a methodology and a really important one in addition to being a really great case study. So you're arguing here that Darwin purposefully constructed his his theory with the teleological trajectory in which human beings were the goal of natural selection. And this is quite different from what some people have assumed about Darwin's ideas and the place of humanity within that. So could you speak a little bit to that issue, um, both what the work that you're doing argumentatively in this chapter and also its broader relevance for the kind of work that you're doing in the book? Uh, sure. So I think the usual assumption, and you're quite correct, the usual assumption is that uh, Darwin displaced human beings from the apex that earlier um, natural theologians had placed human beings, uh, a little less than the angels and greater than the beasts, that the usual assumption is that uh, Darwin introduced, um, as I mentioned before, the uh, a mechanistic perspective into nature and thereby eliminated all teleological considerations. Now, it, it struck me that this seems not an unreasonable view, and certainly it's the consequence of Darwinian theory that contemporary evolutionary theory uh, doesn't have a teleological character to it. But Darwin, at least as I read more and more about Darwin and in his um, various manuscripts and letters and so on. Darwin was a child of the 19th century, and he used the tools of 19th century thought to explore and develop a theory which had its unique features, certainly, and was a harbinger of many more contemporary ideas. But Darwin himself um, used, as I say, the tools of the 19th century. And one of those tools is a notion that somehow um, man is uh, a privileged kind of entity. And if you read carefully Darwin's early notebooks, it seems pretty clear that what Darwin wanted to do is to explain uh, how human beings developed and that what were the antecedent conditions in order to make it explicit and to make it um, understandable 
that development. But the goal was to explain the origin of human beings. And so the theory was developed with that in, end in mind. And I think uh, it struck me more and more as particularly the early Darwin uses the language of teleology uh, to give an account of um, the theory that is being developed. So, for example, uh, the early Darwin talks about how to explain uh, sexual generation. So this is something that was a kind of problem that his grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, had already introduced, that he noticed there are two kinds of generation, what we would call clonal generation, in which uh, budding and uh, fission of uh, organisms is the uh, way in which they reproduce themselves. So worms, so planaria, for example, Darwin was familiar with this. Um, many of us insects and so forth uh, reproduce um, asexually. But then there's sexual reproduction, and the question is, why should there be sexual reproduction? And Darwin's own account of that is a perfectly explicit teleological account. Uh, there will be there is sexual reproduction in order that there be social animals, and there are social animals in order that there be moral animals. And that's the reason why there is sexual reproduction. So just that little argument uh, that Darwin develops for himself is a teleological argument. That is, the goal of the process determines what the antecedent uh, conditions of the process are. And if you um, read, I think, sensitively that the last paragraph in The Origin of Species, where Darwin is talking about there's a grandeur in this view of life, well, it's because that um, the highest object uh, that the laws that he has enunciated in The Origin of Species produce is uh, that of the higher animals. That is the most exalted object, as he says, of this, the result of these laws is the production of the higher animals. The highest animal perfectly obvious to Darwin and I think to us, is us. And so that these laws seem to have a teleological trajectory. Um, and I think there's other evidence in Darwin's uh, correspondence and in the notebooks that suggests this as the overarching view. Now, there's no doubt that Darwin changes his mind over time. And, um, you know, and right after he had written the first edition of The Origin of Species in 1859, when it had come out, uh, some of his uh, reviewers thought it to be um, he was writing atheistically. And Darwin, I think, quite um, obviously was shocked about that, because as he uh, wrote his friend Asa Gray, that he had no intention of writing atheistically, <laughs> that everything, as he says, comes about by designed laws. So there is a notion of um, the role that God still plays in Darwin's theory, and God gets mentioned in the latter part of the book. And the, the usual assumption that somehow he has overturned the theological perspective, I think is simply un, um, is unsupported by the evidence both of the origin of species and the collateral manuscripts that gave rise to it that what Darwin wanted to um, avoid is the notion that God stepped in and created each creature individually, but that there are the laws of nature is the, what he thinks he thinks that he had, or he thought that he had discovered one of those major laws, namely natural selection. And that gives an account of the structure of nature, but that those laws themselves are designed so that they are, as Darwin uses the language of the natural theologians of the day, these are secondary causes with God as a primary cause. So the notion of a designed universe is pushed back a step in Darwin's theory, but it is, I think, by no means eliminated. And this is a view that I think, well, not many of my colleagues share, but it seems to me it's a view that 
is warranted by the evidence. Great. Thank you so much. Now, part of what you uh, were just talking about in considering that essay and that set of questions really leads us to one of the threads that links a lot of the essays together. And this is something that we talked about briefly earlier. And that's the major theme running through many of the essays of the consideration of the moral character of this theory. And many of the essays are showing that Darwin didn't regard the processes of evolution as, as you put it in the volume, morally neutral. A couple of essays really explore this um, explicitly. So after you have an, an essay, chapter three, that looks closely at um, and can carefully considers Darwin's notion of divergence. And this is something um, that's argued in the context of an evaluation of the ideas by Jerry Fodor in a book called What Darwin Got Wrong. So I'm just laying that out there so listeners sure. know about that. Um, I won't ask you about that in detail just yet, though, because what I do want to ask you about is the chapter that comes after chapter four, and to some extent, um, chapter eight. Now, one of the things that's really nice about both of these chapters that they share is an interest in considering the importance of German romanticism in shaping Darwin's notions of morality, of human morality in particular, and in showing how central this is, you're arguing, to his conceptions of um, human instinct, the human mind, and human morality. So because that is such a prevalent theme in at least a couple of the essays, could you talk a little bit about that? And what do you feel is the most important um, contribution here, the most important argument here about the impact of German romanticism on helping us understand um, Darwin in a new light um, in terms of these essays? Well, I think that uh, this is probably the view that I have that um, many of my colleagues dispute rather strongly. And that is the influence of German romanticism on this most sober of Englishmen. Um, I... It only slowly dawned on me that when you look at the kind of literature that Darwin used in formulating his early ideas and giving structure to his own theory, um, there were names that were um, um, came up quite frequently. Alexander von Humboldt. Mm-hmm. Um, so Humboldt is a um, German naturalist. He was a protege of uh, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. He had gone to South America in uh, 1799 and spent five years in South America. Uh, and he wrote about it in a uh, autobiographical series of books, uh, which Darwin, when he was at Cambridge, read. And it was that which inspired him to undertake his own travels to um, the new continent. So Humboldt's perspective, you can see Darwin um, employing that, and it's a view about, um, I mean, he took Humboldt's um, uh, travel journals with him on the Beagle, also his works in uh, botany, and the, he, the, probably no name appears more frequently in Darwin's um, early journals while he's on the Beagle voyage than that of Alexander von Humboldt. He confesses in the um, researches of the voyage of the Beagle, the book that he published in 1839, that he saw uh, South America through Humboldtian eyes. And that's literally what he says. And then that he was predisposed to view nature in those terms. And I think uh, without doubt, Humboldt is one of those romantic adventurers uh, that uh, deeply influenced Darwin's view about nature, that nature was a kind of vivid living entity. Mm-hmm. He also gets ideas about German romanticism in uh, circuitous ways. So, for example, just the notions of um, uh, the embryo going through certain stages that recapitulate uh, the stages of the early history of organisms that the that on to put it in the way that Ernst Haeckel one of his later disciples would put it that ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny that idea uh, which was endemic to many German romantic thinkers uh, came via um, Richard Owen uh, so Darwin adopts this view um, partially through Owen, and um, 
I think that's just one of the ways in which these romantic ideas do filter through uh, uh, to Charles Darwin. And he reads, in translation, he reads Goethe's uh, view about plants and their development. So these kinds of hints suggested to me that perhaps the mechanistic view of nature that is usually ascribed to Darwin is... Um, uh, deficient in on not recognizing what might be called the more organic view, which is indeed the view that many German romantics held, that nature ought to be regarded as much more of a living entity as opposed to in a machine. And I think, again, when you see how Darwin represents nature, both in his manuscripts and in the finished product, The Origin of Species, it is of a fecund, developing a productive uh, entity as opposed to some kind of clockwork machine. In just one index of this, it's a small index, but I think t a telling one. If you look at uh, the origin of species and just count the number of times the word mechanism in any of its forms, mechanical, mechanistic, machine, appears in the origin exactly five times. Hmm. Whereas the word purpose or um, any of its synonyms appears something like 67 times. So, as I say, that's just an index, but it, um, it, 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 I think, certainly colored Darwin's view. And I'll just give you another example of this. Um, we think of nature as red in tooth and claw. That's the way Darwinian nature is usually viewed. But if you see how Darwin thinks about natural selection, uh, he talks about natural selection as working for the good of each being. Now, that's a phrase that occurs something like five times in the origin, that natural selection works for the good of each being. That's a kind of moral perspective, because as we well know, natural selection does not work for the good. I mean, from our perspective, does not work for the good of each being. It destroys most beings. It eliminates most beings. But it struck me that Darwin's view about nature is that really of the characteristics of the recently departed deity. And therefore, it is a benevolent view of nature and not this uh, cruel and sort of uh, mechanical view of nature at all. So um, these, are, these are all parts of a puzzle. But I think once you get the parts and you start putting them together, you get a rather different picture of, of Darwin. Speaking of the characteristics of the recently departed, um, and speaking of Heckel specifically, yeah. um, a couple of the chapters focus on Heckel, the figure of Heckel, and various aspects of his work um, in presenting, I think, a, a really rich picture of this element of the history of Darwin and Darwin's ideas and Darwinianism. It also um, gives me an opportunity um, to just mention what's one of my absolute favorite sentences in the book, which ends um, chapter six. For Heckel, love fled and hid her face among sea creatures. It's just <laughs> such a beautiful image. Now, in addition to um, chapter seven, which reconsiders uh, recent claims that Heckel was a fraud and also uh, while doing so really provides an instance of a case um, in which we can clearly see um, why it's so important to bring a kind of caution to con imposing contemporary science on the past. You have a chapter, uh, chapter six, that looks specifically at Heckel from the perspective of considering him equally as a scientist and an artist. And it's quite a beautiful chapter. It's quite a moving chapter. And it's making a really interesting argument here about the importance, uh, among other things, specifically of tragedy to shaping not just the art, but also the science um, of Heckel's career and the way it developed. And it has to do with jellyfish. And I won't give away <laughs> the whole story, um, but could you just speak a little bit um, to that, um, just to the kind of the importance of tragedy um, in, in understanding what's going on here, because it's such a beautiful and such a moving part of the book. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, I became interested in Ernst Heckel um, a long time ago. And he's, the more I read him and the more I read about how or, or others have written about him, a rather maligned character in the history of biology, but an, a character that, um, as I came to see, was extraordinarily influential. And really, he was the champion of Darwinism in Germany. 
And his views reverberated right through to the, actually to the 21st century. But what attracted me initially to Heckel was also the recognition that he was an artist and he was quite a talented painter, both in oils and watercolor. And he illustrated all of his own um, monographs. Uh, Heckel is often you, uh, thought to be simply a popularist or a popularizer of evolutionary theory. He, he wrote uh, two different books, uh, which went through many editions, and they really did convey evolutionary theory to large masses of mankind. Uh, many more volumes of Heckel were published and read and consumed than those by Charles Darwin himself. But um, Heckel was also a research biologist. He wrote something like 20 very large monographs of a very technical character. But all of them were illustrated by his own hand. And what I was initially interested in is the way in which one's artistic sensibilities work hand in hand, or sometimes perhaps even antithetically uh, to one's uh, analytic and more scientific considerations. And Heckel sometimes stumbled in that respect, sometimes not. So just to give you um, the stumble, which um, when you read about it, uh, you see why it happened, how it it um, enmeshed him in a series of charges about how Heckel was nothing but a fraud and how you too could easily make that same mistake. It's no question he made a mistake, but I don't think it had the um, character that I, it is, it's usually thought to have. And here, here is just it. In one of his popular ways of representing the um, recapitulational thesis, namely that ontogeny, the embryo goes through the same stages as the phylum went through in its evolutionary trajectory. So the human embryo, for example, begins as a one-celled creature. It goes through a stage in which it's something like an invertebrate, then something like a vertebrate, and maybe a little bit like some of the characteristics of fish, and so on, to a, that of a primate, and then finally a human being. Uh, the same kind of uh, trajectory that uh, our evolutionary scheme would suggest occurred in the production of human beings. So Heckel represents this view, and he's one of the corollaries of the view is that embryos at a very early stage are going to be quite similar to one another because they have derived from the same ancestor, and that's part of evolutionary theory. So he pictures embryos at various stages of development, human embryos, for example, and also other animal embryos. And in the very earliest stages, you might say he, he pictures three eggs, and they are, that is the illustration in his popular book, Die Naturliche Schampfungsgeschichte, shows three eggs, and he says one is the egg of a turtle, one is the egg of a dog, and one is the egg of a, um, I forget what it is, a chicken perhaps. And they look similar. And then he shows you the next stage, which is the so-called sandal stage, in which the embryos take on vaguely the shape of a sandal sole, so something like an hourglass shape. And he says, if you look very carefully, you won't see the differences among these. Well, one of the astute first um, uh, reviewers of Heckel's book pointed out, you won't see any difference because, as a matter of fact, he used the same woodcut three times. Mm. Now, the, the, um, the book itself was based on a series of lectures that Heckel gave. And Heckel profusely illustrated these lectures with big wall charts. And um, the book itself was the result of some of his students re, um, just steno uh, stenographically taking notes, and he used those notes to put the book together. He gathered the illustrations uh, using these wall charts, and un undoubtedly, he could, if, if, uh, embryos at the stages that he's looking at, say at the stage of an egg or the stage of a sandal embryo, the, you really can't tell the differences among them. Um, and many embryologists of the period would testify to that. So he undoubtedly took an easy step, namely he just used the same woodcut three times. Now, 
That's probably a mistake. And in the second edition, he uses only one woodcut of the embryos at this very early stage and says they might as well be the this might as well be the embryo of a dog, chicken and turtle because you can't tell the difference at this stage. But that char, that mistake ha- uh, hounded him and haunted him for the rest of his career. The enemies of evolutionary theory, religious enemies in particular, uh, latched on to the notion that Heckel had committed fraud and therefore all of his work was tainted. And that charge um, um, reverberated right through to the modern age. And um, there are some arguments of embryologists to the same effect that Heckel was uh, a fraud. So anyway, that is part of the tale that I tell and try to unravel the many features of it. The tragedy of Heckel's life, and I guess that's what you were alluding to. Um, Heckel, uh, and, and I suppose here I'm, I'm displaying my own romantic tendencies, when Heckel was um, doing his habilitation research, so in Germany, as you know, and your listeners may come to know, um, if you want to be a German academic, you really essentially have to write two PhDs. You'd write a regular PhD, and then um, some time later, you have to have another major publication. And you have to do a different kind of research for that second effort. And so Heckel went to Italy uh, and looked for a subject for his habilitation, his second PhD. And he um, got enmeshed in a group of German artists, and he himself um, brought his canvases with him and his sketchbooks and spent an awful lot of time not working on what would be his uh, habilitation, but in poetizing and traveling and doing the things that any graduate student would love to do. But what brought him back to the realization that he really did have to work on his habilitation was that he was engaged to a woman back in Berlin whom he desperately loved. And the love letters that passed between them, well, there's something delicious to, to read. Uh, and uh, they have all the character that you can well imagine a, ad- a slightly older adolescent in the throes of love might express. Uh, he would decorate these letters with little sketches. He would write poetry to his beloved. So he was quite smitten, and he recognized that the life of a bohemian did not pay very well, so that he really had to concentrate on doing the kind of research that would get him an academic job. Well, he does that research. In fact, it was on a small kind of um, organism uh, called a radiolarian. He writes a mammoth volume on this, wins him all sorts of kudos, and gets him a permanent position at the university at Jena. It allows him to get married to the woman he really was head over heels in love with. But 18 months after the um, marriage, she tragically dies. And it has all the consequences that you can imagine. He is distraught. His parents think he's going to commit suicide. He threatens suicide. Uh, They send him to... um, the French Riviera, which was not quite what it is today, for recuperation. And he comes to a conclusion that the kind of religious views that his parents had no longer uh, were views that he himself could endorse because this woman, whom he desperately loved, had been snatched from his hand. And so he dedicates himself to something that he thinks is more permanent. And it's something that he can rely on, and that is Darwinian evolutionary theory. But it's a a kind of pall that was cast over his life, and that, as it turns out, his wife died on the very day that he got word that he had won a very prestigious prize for his work on radiolaria and on his birthday. Hmm. And thereafter, on his birthday as he himself confessed to many others that uh, he only had thoughts of suicide. But the kind of dedication that he gave to evolutionary theory, I think, was both a substitute for a no longer present religious view, and also in some kind of deep way, uh, a memorial and a way of preserving 
the woman whom he desperately loved. So that was the tragedy. Thank you. I'm, I'm getting verklempt just listening to him. Thank you again. <laughs> Well, Bob, I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I think it's fitting um, that at the sort of end of our conversation together to kind of bring us to a close, we go back to the beginning. And that's the beginning of the book. And the title was Hitler a Darwinian. You've already talked about the fact that this uh, motivated the volume in important ways. And chapter nine closes the book by looking at re- re- really closely at ideologically driven attempts to make connections between Hitler, Nazi biology, and Darwinian theory in contemporary scholarship. And you're and the chapter is responding um, in this way to a kind of assumption on the fact by a lot of people who have written about this and um, think in some way about this that the approach of Darwinian theory to human beings kind of necessarily entails or leads to some element of racism or uh, moral delinquency. And you're showing in this chapter that that's not the case through, again, a really fine-grained, very sensitive reading of reading practices and of texts. So the chapter considers the question, was Hitler a Darwinian, by looking at the supposedly causal connection between Darwin and Hitler and very carefully following um, not only the sort of history of ideas of racial hierarchy as they were um, or as they appeared in work before Darwin, so showing that uh, ideas of or assumptions of racial hierarchy did not originate in Darwin. This is a longer trajectory, but also in looking very closely at the reading practices of Hitler and the ways that they did or did not, um, in, in, in particular, engage with either Darwin's work and or Darwinian um, theories more generally. So could you speak a little bit to that um, as a way of um, bringing us um, to a close here? Was Hitler a Darwinian? And how does um, looking at, for you, the reading practices um, of Hitler bring us to understanding the answer to this question? Well, I think the argument has been made by Um, mostly those who object to evolutionary theory, and particularly because they think evolutionary theory itself has deleterious moral consequences. It is sometimes said if you teach children that we have evolved from monkeys, they're going to act like monkeys. That is the moral problem that evolutionary theory suggests is one that uh, people should take seriously and and do take seriously. But... um, those who want an argument against evolutionary theory, uh, both those of a religious means and those, I think, of really, you know, who don't have an axe to grind but think this is a natural consequence of evolutionary theory. Um, They have argued that uh, Hitler's biology derived from Darwinian assumptions. Now, I think the way that argument is usually posed is that if Hitler's biology derived from Darwin, you can argue that Darwinian theory has both malign moral consequences and somehow that makes it illegitimate. That is, there, it, it can't be a good theory if it has these uh, consequences. Now, there are books that have been written with titles like From Darwin to Hitler, uh, showing a kind of trajectory that goes from Darwinian thinking through Ernst Haeckel, uh, finally to Nazi biology, but most particularly to Hitler's biology. So there is no doubt that among German scientists who uh, were in Germany during the Second World War, there were biologists who were indeed Darwinian biologists. The question, and maybe this is a more narrow kind of question, is what were the origins of Hitler's racism? And so what I wanted to do is to to see, to try to argue a couple of things. One, it seems to me perfectly um, a a non-starter to say if Hitler uh, was a Darwinian, Therefore, somehow Darwinian theory is invalid or it, Darwin himself was morally delinquent. That just doesn't follow at all. Um, a good deal of racial hygiene in uh, Nazi Germany uh, can be traced back to Mendelian genetics and what people thought were the consequences of Mendelianism. 
no one charges uh, Gregor Mendel with uh, somehow producing a immoral theory or questions the basic validity of Mendelian genetics. It's only Charles Darwin who comes uh, under fire for that. So one, you know, one way of just sort of um, uh, shortcutting this whole argument is to say, even if Hitler um, had Darwin's origin of species by his bedside and read it religiously every night, this would have no implications about the moral character of Darwin's theory or uh, the validity of that theory. Mm-hmm. But what I try to investigate is, so putting that aside, to see whether there were indeed connections between Hitler's views about race and Darwin's evolutionary theory. And so I try to look very carefully at, um, say, Mein Kampf and other of Hitler's writings, his table talk and the speeches that he gave and uh, his Zweites Buch, um, another book that really wasn't published during his lifetime, uh, to see what the sources of his, uh, his uh, racial views were. And it struck me as being really quite odd to say, if you think that Hitler's um, racial views derive from Darwin, or even via Ernst Haeckel, that in um, Mein Kampf, the, Charles Darwin's name or Haeckel's name never appears. There's not any indication that he ever read Darwin or even really knew who he was. Um, if you examine uh, Haeckel, uh, excuse me, um, Hitler's Mein Kampf, you see that as a matter of fact, he has a view about species not fully expressed and only fragmentary through the book. But it's, it's a view in which species are stable. They don't change over time. As he says, the goose is always a goose. Um, the fox, always a fox. And what he was mainly concerned with is racial purity. The racial purity of the Aryan group and also the racial purity of the Jews. And what he fought against, what the struggle was all about, he thought, was the prevention of intermarriage between Jews on the one hand, that racially pure group, and the Aryan group because it would have deleterious consequences for the Aryans. He has many, um, uh, certainly, uh, uh, derogatory things to say about Jews. Uh, It's the Jews, the capitalists, and the Bolsheviks that um, undermined uh, the Germans uh, during the First World War and are set to undermine uh, German culture uh, in the period that he comes to power. So, I guess the, the the main conclusion I drew very easily was that there's not the slightest scintilla of evidence that uh, uh, Hitler um, endorsed anything like an evolutionary perspective. And in fact, in one of his table talks, these are uh, recordings of made by Martin Bormann, uh, stenographic recordings of uh, Hitler at uh, his ease, usually in the evening. Uh, these are now readily available. Uh, the only time the, you you see uh, Hitler really talking about anything that resembles evolutionary theory is one point in which he said he was reading a book on uh, human beings and their origin. And uh, the idea came to the fore that we had derived from lower creatures, and he just thought that was ridiculous. So I think a sensitive reading of Hitler's Mein Kampf and the other Hitlerian writings and um, tracing out as I try to uh, where Hitler's views about species and races came from suggests that there's zero evidence that any of it uh, came out of uh, evolutionary theory. Well, Bob, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. There's, um, I want to let you go um, so I don't take up too much of your time. But I just want to give you the opportunity, um, because it is such a rich book, in case um, there's anything that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you feel is especially important to mention for listeners, um, and especially perhaps for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it. If there's anything that you'd like to mention, um, you know, please uh, do so. Well, first of all, Carla, I thank you very much. It's very few authors have such a um, 
comprehensive and sensitive reader and interlocutor uh, to talk about their material. It's usually um, the kinds of uh, conversations I have with people who um, want to talk about a book I, I've written is um, I wonder that whether it's the same book I, I wrote that <laughs> we're talking about. But 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 I, I don't feel that in your case, certainly at all. I guess, you know, my views are not the standard ones. They're rather contrarian. And I, I suppose what I hope is that um, people will read this book and others that and give the evidence uh, a fair hearing and perhaps uh, begin to see Darwin, the Darwinians and many other things somewhat differently. But thanks very much, Carla. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Congratulations. Thanks. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.